And welcome to episode 38 of Chin Music. It's a podcast presented by Fangraphs in quite cold, gray, DeKalb, Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein, returning to the co-host chair this week. Joining me from, I'm betting gray, I'm not sure how cold, but gray, San Francisco. It is 60 and slightly cloudy. It's the lovely Ben Clemens giving you his weather report. Ben, how are you? I'm good. Um, I'll be here on the fives and 35s with the weather reports. <laughs> See, if you were from Chicago, you'd say traffic and weather on the eights. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm giving away my uh, my Southern upbringing. Exactly. Yeah. News Radio 78, the iconic news station of Chicago, traffic and weather on the eights. Uh, that's, a, that's it for our Chicago radio update. We're going to talk a lot about baseball, though. Uh, the season has ended. We have a World Series champion. We'll get into that. Um, the season has ended. The offseason has begun, and that means transactions have begun. We'll kind of get into that and a little bit of free agent talk. Um, the season has ended, and we are less than a month away from the expiration, or likely expiration, of the collective bargaining agreement. We'll get into that. And then also we had breaking news yesterday. We're going to talk about this specifically in about, I believe, three hours from now. Um, there will be a press conference in San Francisco. Uh, during which Buster Posey will announce his retirement. And obviously the story's already broken. We'll talk about Buster Posey for a little bit. Our guest this week is Robert Ford, uh, who is, in full transparency, a friend of mine who I like a lot. He's a great guy. He is the play-by-play voice of the Houston Astros. And we're going to talk about the Houston Astros, we'll talk about the World Series, kind of talk about uh, Astros vibe, if you will. Uh, and, and, and talk about also Robert's, uh, pretty remarkable career beginnings of, of sitting in stands at games and recording, uh, recording himself, calling play by play at games, sitting in the seats surrounded by people looking at him like he's crazy, uh, as well as, um, something he's become a part of, which is the black play by play fund. Uh, and then we'll get into our very strange musical guest, Dr. Colossus. Uh, the name enough is, is right all you need but it, they're very strange uh, we'll read your emails we'll catch up with ben we'll have a moment of culture and then you can uh get on with your carefree lifestyles ben are you ready to talk about baseball i am although it's very presumptuous of you to say that i have a carefree lifestyle you i think you i don't you know you and i talk a lot we have yet to meet in person i, think, I believe that's changing soon yeah um I think you have a click care. If I was going to guess, you have a fairly carefree lifestyle. No, I do. I just like, uh, I like challenging assumptions, but no, you're right. I'm pretty carefree. <laughs> um, hey, guess what, Ben? The season's over. Yeah. The World Series ended in six games uh, with the Atlanta Braves winning the World Series in, I don't think any, yeah, I say it's where I, in a minor upset. I don't think any series can be anything more than a minor upset. Um, but the Braves pitched exceptionally well. The, the Astros stopped hitting, and all of a sudden, the Atlanta Braves 
are the World Series champion. I was talking with uh, an executive from another team about a separate subject, and we talked about the World Series briefly. And he said, you know, by our systems, the Braves were the worst playoff team. And here we are. That's, uh, that's high praise for the Cardinals, but <laughs> that aside, yeah. The Braves, you know, I don't think that there's anything undeserving at all about their playoff. No, running. not at all. They have played it's not everybody. About, it's not about the best team the whole season. It's about the best team in October. Yeah, and I, I don't think there is, there's much debate that the Braves outplayed the teams they played against. They didn't, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't bat up their way to success with a bunch of fluky ground balls. They hit a billion home runs, didn't allow any home runs, and managed their pitching staff perfectly. I, they were just better. Yeah, I, it, it's, it was it was interesting um, just how kind of, of in, in, in a postseason defined by, by pitcher utilization, um, even though some situations uh, such as pitchers not doing well or tra- the Charlie Morton injury uh, forced uh, Troy Snicker to Troy um, to to uh, you know get into a little improv once in a while um, for the last three innings of nearly at least three or four innings of nearly every game he it was it was rote yeah the exact opposite of improv right it was he knew exactly what he was doing and it was even I was even a little surprised to see him go to that rote uh, in game six um, as low as Max Reed's pitch count was and as much as he was killing it. Um, after six, he went. Yep, I'm going. I'm going to my bullpen r- routine at this point. Um, and you can't blame him. It worked like a charm. Uh, but I, uh, I, I was surprised. Can I workshop an idea for you here? Oh, let's go workshop it. Okay, so I know that a lot of numbers-based front office types would totally agree with Snitker's decision there to take Freed out, even with a low pitch count, and just go to the bullpen. Yes. I think it was probably, or not probably, but I think it might have analytically been the wrong move for this reason. So the Braves were way up. It was 6 nothing at the time, right? Maybe 5 nothing. They, they were up a ton of runs when Freed came out. And so for the game to go wrong, two of your relievers are going to have to blow up. Like, mm-hmm. that that's how the Astros are getting back into this game. It's not one bad reliever, but two. Because you're not leaving a reliever in to give up six runs. Right. It's just, that's, in the playoffs, that's never happened. And so, given the fact that in any scenario where the Astros are back in the game, like, several of the trusty relievers have blown up and, like, just had a bad game, just don't have it that night, I think I like Freed more than, like, the fourth best guy in the pen. And if the Astros are tying the game, it's because they're going to get to see the fourth best guy in the pen. So even though replacing Freed with the bullpen arms probably lowers the mean number of runs the Astros score, I think leaving him in just because if you know that two of your bullpen arms were going to be bad, of course you'd want to get an extra three outs out of Freed. Mm-hmm. I, I think that basically, like, they did, if the game was 2 nothing, it would have been a no-brainer, like, bringing the heavy artillery. Right, it was 6 to nothing. But I think there's some disaster management that you should be doing when you're up 6 nothing, where you say... The ways that I lose this game, and you you could have a short leash on Freed. That's fine. If you give up one run by trying to run him too long, I'm like okay, that, that's not the end of the world by any means because you're up so much. And but to be I, fair, he he like skipped he skipped Luke Jackson. He went to he he got six outs from Matzik, who's been nothing short of incredible. Yeah, he skipped Luke Jackson. Uh, I mean, I 
I don't really have any problem with his management at all. I just thought that was interesting that mm-hmm. the first thing I thought was like, oh, yeah, that's the right move because, you know, these guys project to allow fewer runs. And then I thought, well, that's true. But when you're up 6 nothing, maybe you should worry about worst case scenarios rather than, uh, you know, central hmm. assumptions. I think there's an argument to be made for and against. I don't it, it's obviously it worked out. Um but yeah, I, I, I get where you're coming from. I'm not sure myself. I yeah. was just, I was kind of surprised he didn't get the seventh. Um, I'm actually yeah. calling, you know, I'm actually calling it up here. I mean, he was at like 74, 74 pitches. pitches. Yeah. Um, and, and was showing no signs of any sort of, yeah. of fatigue. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, this is, you know, I don't, without getting into whatever the hell was tweeted today by gambler people, um, but, you know, going into this, the Braves had, I don't know if anyone thought the Braves were going to get through this postseason um, as the champions. And so I think this is good for baseball having, you know, what has been become relative parity. I agree. I think the Braves, I think the Braves showed real like forethought and planning and ability to understand the trade markets in the way that they supplemented this team that I think is a big credit to their front office. For sure. Every year you can find, Eddie Rosario and Adam Duvall and Jock Peterson. And Jorge for, Soler. And Jorge Soler for basically nothing at the trade deadline. That's just how it works. Those guys aren't in demand. But the Braves needed to take to, you know, to acquire a bunch of those guys and see which ones stuck. And they did. I think a lot of teams wouldn't have done that. They would have gotten one or two and just said, well, we filled the holes. But I, I thought Anthopoulos' plan of, hey, teams aren't asking for much in return on these guys in trade. So let's just get them all and like see what works. Right, let's exactly. We'll take, we'll grab four of them and two will work out. I thought that was um, uh, a very inspired move and one that you don't see teams do very much, at least yeah, with and, position players. And they were also a team that was um, like when they were making these deals, anything but guaranteed a playoff spot. Right. You know, they they, they weren't sitting there going, "We're absolutely in the playoffs." Like our chances are, uh, you know, we got to get our chances higher to get to the playoffs. We're going to make moves, and you see a lot of teams in those positions kind of stand pat, you know, and kind of say. Eh, we might not even make it. Are we really going to make a big run here? Um, and so I think you got to give them credit for for just their just their aggressiveness. Yeah, and I think you know there's blind aggression, like signing Carlos Santana to go from 78 wins to 80 wins or whatever. You know, there there's ways where you can be blindly aggressive, and I don't always love it. I was not a big fan of that signing for the Royals last off season because I just didn't quite get it. But these there was just no downside to trying this. It, it was, I mean, one of the trade for Eddie Rosario was for Pablo Sandoval, who I think was DFA'd before the trade was complete. Like, right. No, I, yeah. It was, it was just a, a money clear. It was just a money clear. And I, I do think that if there's something that teams will be taking from the Braves this year, and you know, that's always one of those stories. What, what do people take from the world series winner? Well, they are, like they seem to be pretty good at understanding what they can trade for and going out and doing it and not doing half measures. Like not overpaying, but also not doing half measures. I think that's a it's not something that you would think of the Braves having some special skill at. I, I think of, you know, the guys who are frequently trading as the ones who are good at trading, but mm-hmm, may mm-hmm. not like the Rays. But the Braves did an awesome job. I I don't think I would say that any front office did a better job retooling than they did this year when Acuna uh was lost to injury. Right. Um you know, the Braves, it, it's, they should still be good next year. Um, it's, it's funny that, you know, Freddie Freeman's a free agent. Um, yeah, sure. But, <laughs> hey, but yeah, and that's, but that seems to be the, the assumption. And, and I feel like, you know, obviously 
for whatever reasons, he's not already re-signed when everyone thought he would be re-signed. Um, and, and maybe there is a mismatch on, on, on the money expected and being offered. And, and, you know, Freeman just did wonders for himself with his postseason um, in terms of leverage. I think it's going to be even harder for them to just let him walk. But um, this team should be just fine next season. I think, you know, I, it's hard to see them walking into the year as anything but the favor, the favorites rather in, in the National League East again. Yeah, I think it'll probably be another, you know, tough division. There's a lot of good yeah, teams there. I mean, the, there. the Phillies still could do some right things and get some things right and be a really good team. Yeah, and the Phillies, I don't know what their offseason plans are, but they have some holes that they could upgrade with people who are available. For sure. The Mets, yeah, I don't know. Who probably, knows? Probably Jacob DeGrom will get leprosy. <laughs> right, the Mets feel, I don't know. Like, if you told me the Mets were going to win 70 games next year, I'd nod my head. And if you told me they are going to win 92, I'd nod my head. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're yeah. a tough one to peg. The Nationals look like they're a year off from competing. So, yeah, the, I think the Braves are pretty solidly at least the favorite in that division next year. And, and I think the Astros, despite the the, the impending loss of, of Carlos Correa, well, I I would assume they'd still be the favorites in the West next year. You think they're a potential Marcus Simeon destination? I don't know if the industry sees Marcus Simeon as a shortstop anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that they saw him as a shortstop last year either. Um, and, and obviously he played second base all year and it's not like played know, a good second base. He played a very good second base and, 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 you know, he played second base in deference to Bichette, who is not a defensive stalwart by any stretch. Yes. Although more of a long-term piece. But yeah. Of you team. don't, yeah, you sure you don't move the kid. Even if it was 100% obvious that Semyon was better than Bichette at shortstop defense, I would not have played Semyon at shortstop because you think he's only going to be there for a year. And yeah, right. like Bichette's your kind of one of your franchise players. I don't think that necessarily says much about Semyon's defense. If he was Andleton Simmons, fine. Maybe you move Bichette for a year. Mm-hmm. But the value you're getting there is the bat and the capable middle infield glove. So I, right. I don't think that move says too much. And in a small sample, when he did play shortstop, he was not that great. So that that's to your point. Yeah, exactly. And so... um that's interesting. I, I wouldn't be. So, it's. I think. I don't know. I think it's tough. This is personal philosophy. Um, like I'm fine with hiding bad defenders in at, at any corner, first, third, left, right, anywhere but short and center. Anywhere but short, second, center. I can't do it up the middle. I just can't do it. Um, I don't mind the bad second base defenders. I thought Mustakas. I think you can live with that. Just yeah, fine. But yeah. Center short catch. I just don't. I yeah. don't think you can do it. And and you know. And you saw. You know, and you saw with the Astros, Maldonado, Correa, and um, for a while, Miles Straw. But, I mean, Jake Myers is, is actually a phenomenal defensive center fielder. McCormick, too. Yeah. Um, and Chaz McCormick's a good defensive center fielder. So, you know, I, those are places where I just don't think you can do yeah. it. Uh, and and, and I'd, I'd be surprised to see the Astros go that route. So, um, that? But, I mean, they do have, they, I think they're, I, mean, I really think they're leaning on Jeremy Pena, who might be ready. Um, uh, whether he's ready or not, I do think he's going to be a very, very good player, a well above average possible star level shortstop um, who can hit, has some power, and actually is, is a plus defender. So in that case, how do you feel about a short, high average annual value contract for Javi Baez while Jeremy Pena gets ready? Or do you think they're just going to go internally and kind of I think bank they the might savings? Just, I think they might just go internally. Yeah, I mean... Um, that is that seems like a reasonable plan if they're replacing Korea with essentially nothing and depending on what happens to their pitching, that does make the AL West a, a tighter division, but presumably they could, you know, reinvest some of those savings in 
just some more reliable pitching to add to the you know, they have some good pitchers. They don't have a bulk amount of good pitchers. Right. Um do you did you do you think again like the story of this postseason is was you know pitcher utilization and and there was a lot of of wailing and gnashing of teeth over it i still think that a lot of this was a um a result or a, or kind of of collateral damage if you will from 2020 mm-hmm. um, and i think players were more exhausted than ever and you know i'm not saying we're going to go back to 1983 and expect seven, eight innings from starters in the playoffs anymore, but I don't think it's going to be like this again. I think it's going to be more like 2018, 2019, where we had plenty of, of short starts and, and plenty of things that, that, you know, it resembled pen games at times, but not like this. Yeah. I completely agree with that. Actually. I, I think that a lot of the starters aren't going long enough this postseason. just kind of willfully ignored what actually happened in those games. Like, when Chris Sale gets torched against the uh, Astros, what do you need? You're just going to leave him in there when he's giving up five runs every two innings? Right. That's not... They would have yanked him in the 70s. They would have yanked him in the 60s. That's not some you know, change in philosophy. A lot of these guys weren't effective. And I think the team that you saw that, quote-unquote, did what the old-school people want them to do, the Dodgers, like overexposed all their starters because these guys were just like not built up from pitching a short 2020. Right, and, and and both the Braves and the Astros were, were with their without their number one playoff starters in, in Morton and McCullers. Yeah, I thought the I thought both the Braves and the Astros did a very good job of balancing the fact that they need to get enough innings with the fact that these guys just weren't going to be throwing seven innings, like you said. They didn't have the right, right pitchers to do it, and, and that they're and that they're playing another game tomorrow, yeah, which is always in tomorrow. the back of their mind. And you know, it, it's um. You know, the Braves managed games four and five, knowing that they had two more in Houston. They were up and they had to get through 27 outs without a starting pitcher. Yeah. Um, Uh, Right. And then when they used their starting pitchers, I mean, I didn't think they really pulled Ian Anderson too early. I know that was a a mm -hmm. ridiculous take factory take that you should have let him go for the no hitter. I mean, hey, come on. (laughs) Right. No, don't do that. I would give you pretty good odds of Ian Anderson pitching a no-hitter in that game. There was no chance. He looked bad, and he had 80 pitches through five innings or whatever. Uh, the, so with, with the season ending, it's already happening. Like, teams, players are, are opting out. Players are, you know, we did the, the, the usual day after MLBPA press release with the list of all the players who are eligible for free agency. Um, the offseason has kind of started in the sense that, uh, you know, we, did, we have to trade with, with Tucker Barnhart going to the Tigers. Um, we are currently in what is called the quiet period. And during this time, um, teams do have an exclusive negotiation window with their own free agents. So for the next four or five days, um, you know, only the Houston Nationals can talk to Carlos Correa. Only Atlanta Braves can talk to Freddie Freeman. Uh, but after that, the free-for-all begins. And ignoring the, the looming shadow of a possible player lockout, um, this is a really good free agent class. It is. I was benchmarking our class to last year's class because I wanted to see if my money forecasts mm. were reasonable for our top 50 list. And I looked, and our 25th best free agent, I have is J.D. Martinez, and maybe I'm a little low on him. But the the similar 25th best free agent last year was like Michael Pineda or something. Right. Like, 
or maybe that was two years ago. But, uh, you know, it's some guy who's going to get a one-year deal, like a make-good deal. And then <laughs> here we've got a guy who's opting out of his last year of a contract to get an extension, essentially. Right. And, I mean, the top 10 is stacked this year. Clayton Kershaw is not one of my top 10 free agents. A little preview of Monday's list. And I think you could argue that that's wrong, but there's just a lot of really good players available this year. In an, it's what we thought of the class two years ago would be before extensions kind of pruned that one. Right. And the class is, is headlined by the shortstop class. And the shortstop class is headlined, in my mind, by Carlos Correa. Oh, yeah. I don't, um, I don't even think it's a question anymore. Yeah. I, Corey Seager's great. Like, you know, and, and I think number Corey, two, I think. Corey Seager and Carlos Correa, in my mind, are very similar offensively. Yes. Um, I think Correa actually might, or rather, Seager actually might be the better offensive player. I think he's a. I think Seager's the better offensive player. I think yeah. he's half a tick better hitter and um and, and has very underrated power. Like Correa, you see, is a power hitter, and I think Seager's seen as a hitter. Like, uh, you know, Corey Seager's power is, is equal to Correa. Yeah, um, I and, I agree with you on that. Defense um, is not close. Yeah, the defense isn't close. You know, uh, you know, Corey Seager is a forty-five shortstop, and Carlos Correa is a seventy. Um, and I think that's going to make a huge difference. I and so you know we agree that Correa's one. And it's, I do get kind of locked up though when people say, well, who's going to pay him? It's the Yankees. I, I, I'm right. I just, he seems like the perfect Yankee. And I know, I know Yankee fans are like, oh God, we can't have cross on this team. And, and I always tell them, like, by April 10th, you'll be in love with him. Yeah. It, wait, do they not want to have him because they don't like, you know, good players who don't strike out very much? They don't want the Astro thing. Oh my God. They signed Jacoby Ellsbury. <laughs> and so um but the, but the Yankees are a team that um doesn't always behave to their actual funds and and are very uh CBT aware and they're up against it. Oh, they're up against the current CBT, that's for sure. Right. Yeah, I mean, one thing that is going to weigh like loom over this year's free agency class is that all these predictions are kind of stupid without knowing what the new competitive balance framework will look like. I mean, I basically just assumed that not too much would change. But yeah, it's, 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 I think that's a relatively safe assumption. At least not that much will change in terms of how it would affect your behavior in free agency. I think some things that, I think some big things will change that don't have anything to do with free agency. But, you know, in, in talking to people with teams, um, I've just kind of played, hey, like when the season ends and there's this month before, like, what are you doing? And it's so funny. Like everyone, like I haven't got like a, oh we're still gonna we're gonna act like normal I haven't gotten that answer, <laughs> um or and, and and at the same time like we're not gonna do like we're not gonna do anything because we're not sure what's going on I haven't gotten that answer either everyone's just kind of like we're just gonna plan it by ear yeah like, my sense trying is to, that we're trying to figure out what's going on we're gonna play it by ear and 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 we saw the trade you know like you said for like we said for for, yeah. for Tucker Barnard but um I think it's gonna be a weird month my sense is that some of the uh kind of peripheral guys might for yeah the smaller stuff yeah there there are a lot of free agents this year and there are a lot of free agents who didn't make our top 50 list who i would be excited to add to my team if i had a spot for them and i think some of those guys will sign you know kind of shortish smallish deals in the next month i don't think i don't think carlos correa is signing before there's a new uh, cba no, for sure. And I, I, yeah, I think any, the bigger guys are going to wait the market out anyway. And even for the small guys, if you get your deal done, it's really just for your own comfort. Baseball players don't get paid in the offseason. Right. Uh, it's not like you're making money. And so I think it's just kind of 
knowing what they, you know, knowing that they know where they're going to go, which, which matters to a lot of those players who are in that position where they're, you know, looking for a one year. Um, right. If you're, yeah. um, let's take a random name off of here. Sergio Romo. Right. And you might want to know where he's going to be. You kind of know you're getting one three from somebody. So like if there's a one three deal that comes to you where it's a place you want to live and like work with those to coaches, just, just sign it. You can sign it now yeah, in February. It's, it's the same deal. Right, somewhere on the West Coast, offering you what you think you're going to get. Just take it. Yeah, somewhere Oakland. <laughs> somewhere Oakland. Um, yes, where Sergio likes to play on the West Coast, understandably so. Um, so let's I, let's get into the labor thing, which is you know, uh, you know, obviously Rob Manfred. We talked about this last week with Bag had his uh, World Series press availability, and, and part of that was an availability sitting next to. Um, Tony Clark, Clark with yeah. the Player Association, and and which was interesting, and they both said all the right things, while also clearly saying that they haven't really made a lot of progress. Um, I will say in that talking to teams, it's not universal; it's not one hundred percent, but it does feel like um, most teams at least think that there's going to be a lockout on December second. There's still the chance of a deal, which I think is highly unlikely. There's still the, the the far more decent chance of both sides saying we're not going to lock out. We're just going to extend the existing agreement for a month, right? And while we try, while we continue to work on, which has happened before. There's precedence for that. Yeah, that's um, hardly weird because the lockout doesn't right. seem to do much, like procedurally, right? It, it's mainly just bad PR for both sides. It and the and the, and the lockout is procedural, and the way it was explained to me by somebody was just that. Um, once the CBA expires, the owners kind of have to lock the players out. Right. Like, it's not that like you don't have a choice. You can't say, well, should we lock them out? Like, you kind of, like, the next legal step is to lock them out. Um, and that's, it's not necessarily, it's going to be, I'm, I'm sure, and believe, and believe me, folks, I'm, I'm pretty much on the player's side when it comes to this thing, but that's, it's going to be, there's going to be a narrative that that's kind of an aggressive act. It's just simply procedural. Yeah. My guess is that, like you said, nothing will be done by December 1st, but they might just extend it because neither side probably cares that much for the negotiation of the New Deal about the lockout, but it's probably more press hassle than it's worth. Right. Um, I want to get into Buster Posey. The news broke yesterday, um, and, and that press conference is uh, in a couple hours. Buster Posey uh, announced his retirement Wild. after uh, 12 years of San Francisco Giants baseball, um, Rookie of the Year, MVP. Lots of all-stars. Three rings? Three. Three, Three rings. rings. Um, finished his career with 1,500 hits, a career 302 hitter, 158 home runs. Um, missed all of 2020. Uh, sat out on his own accord due to COVID, as, as was his right. Um, and he, as a as, this is a related aside, okay? All right. Um, after the World Series, uh, Astros pitching coach... Brent Strom uh, said he wasn't coming back to the Astros. Yes. And Astros pitching coach Brent Strom uh, made a comment that I haven't had a summer in a long time. And and maybe I'll just go, go sit on a beach in Mexico. And, you know, um, Buster Posey is a very family-motivated person. And I think spending 2020 with his family and having a summer kind of Adopting maybe, twins? Yeah, having this, these adopted twins and everything kind of let him see that there's you know, more to life than, than losing 
six months of it or nine, you know, seven or eight months of it every year. Um, and he's done. And, and, and he's all he's going to put food on the table. So, right. And I mean, and the other thing, like, I, I don't think people, a lot of people know, like Buster Posey was an early investor in a drink company that got purchased by Coca-Cola for something like $6 billion. Um, and it's quite possible that Buster Posey literally made more money off of that drink company investment um, than the $168 million he made playing baseball. Yes, Buster um, Posey, the 50 cent of baseball. Right. I know I know. Kobe Bryant made $400 million off that transaction. Um, and so, you know, obviously, even if he didn't have that $168 million playing baseball, he doesn't he's good he's fine getting the groceries next week um but buster posey you know obviously an iconic giant were you surprised by this yes i was i i totally sympathize with his decision and i i would make the same decision if i were in his place but i'm not <laughs> i i don't have the mindset that drives professional athletes to you know work an absolutely psychotic amount of hours every week all year uh, which is what they seem to all like to do and get a lot of yeah. enjoyment out of it. Uh, I'm not that guy, so I can't really relate to, to <laughs> like the continuing to play, not the retirement. The retirement makes perfect sense to me. Um, I, you know, I was very shocked because it, he's so great right now, and people don't tend to leave when they're that good. He he had his best season in many years, and you know looked completely rejuvenated with his year off. Uh, the credit to him for saying, ah, you know what, I want to go out on top like this. I think it really is a great bookend to his career, too, because this is the best Giants team that he's been on. You know, no knocks on the three <laughs> in terms of the regular season, yeah. But this was a, a... I think the regular season is often more telling of who the best team was in aggregate. Oh, for sure. Yeah, the playoffs are a dice roll. And this team was just a juggernaut in the regular season. It, watching them and the Dodgers fight down the stretch for the last two months where, you know, the two best teams in baseball in those months were those two teams that's the memory i'm going to take from the season is just this shockingly just dominant giant side that just kept doing it night in and night out mm -hmm. and bookending posey's career from you know rookie of the year to an mvp on a, a title winning team to ending it with the best team of his career with him having a resurgence it's a nice story and i would be very tempted like I'm going to remember Buster Posey more fondly because of how he went out. I'm positive in a few years when I think about him. I'll remember this year very, very heavily in that. So we, we got an email related to this. Um, email comes from Matt. And Matt said, I find myself reading an article about Buster Posey's retirement. It seems shocking looking in, but as an organization, how often do these kinds of announcements catch the president or baseball ops or a GM off guard? Is this the type of conversation in an exit interview brought up by the club? How often, from your experience, do players tell the club ahead of time? Do you have any firsthand knowledge of a club scrambling because of a good player said, I'm done? Uh, Giant-specific, in your opinion, do you think they didn't trade Bart in July because they knew this could happen? Um, and just a hunch, do other teams through players, friends, or agents ever get this info ahead of the media and use it against Team A? Um, I don't know about the last one. <laughs> so, uh, but I would guess i just i'm saying this with no knowledge i would guess that the giants brass had a notion this was coming um at this and a lot of it is because i don't think um that i, I don't think this was a rash decision i, I think this yes, was a this long time coming. very calculated this seems very very calculated 
um and uh you know posey's relationship with the front office is, is well documented as being very good i bet they at least had an inkling if they didn't just absolutely know and it's possible that like posey was you know just considering this for a long time and just kindly went over the line to a yes this is i'm um, retiring right but um i would assume that if that was the case that he would have told the front office hey i'm 50 50 yeah for sure hey i'm just just you know i'm thinking about it and 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 so, you know, rarely are teams completely caught off guard by this. Um, usually there's some inkling. I'm sure many of his teammates knew that it was something he was thinking about and considering uh, and knew not to talk about. Right. My, uh, my sense know. as well is that it matters who it is. That if this was, I don't know, pick somebody who's on a one-year deal this year who's like... Yeah, Anthony Anthony DiSquilfini. Right, and he retired. Like, maybe he didn't talk it out with the Giants beforehand. But, right, for sure. I mean, Buster Posey's been there... A long time. He's the giant. Right. Yeah, I, I am 100% with you on that. I, I think it makes a ton of sense that, like, yeah. Well, why would he Why would he leave the front office high and dry here? He's the giant. Mm-hmm. He's Mr. Giant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they did. I'm sure they had an inkling. I'm sure he was very upfront with them about it. Um, and good for Buster Posey. What a great, a great player. Seemingly the greatest dude. There is a, a tweet out there. Um, which you should go find. I can't give you, I'm not going to read off a tweet link on a podcast, but um, KNBR, which is the, the radio home of the Giants, tweeted out. So just look for KNBR. And it is a video of Buster Posey behind the plate uh, catching called strike threes and walking away before the umpire even called strike three. And it is the best thing on the internet today. It's really enjoyable. This is something that a robotic strike zone would take away from us, Kevin. Exactly. If you want to argue against Robo, I'm Buster well, Posey walking away before the call. Uh, he can just do anyway. feed the regular umps and tell them delay three seconds before making the call. <laughs> <laughs> but things gonna beep, but then you have to stand there. Uh, on that, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk to Robert Ford, the radio voice of the Houston Astros, uh, to talk about Astros stuff, his career, as well as the, the Black Play by Play Fund. So stick around.
Welcome back to the podcast. Special guest time. Our special guest is... It's so funny because I used to think of him as the newish, but he now is the longtime radio voice of the Houston Astros. And joining us from, I imagine, Houston, Texas. I didn't ask beforehand. It's Robert Ford. Robert, how are you? I'm good, and I am in Houston, Texas. Yeah, I just finished my ninth year with the Astros, so I guess I'm not all that new. Yeah, you're the longtime guy now. Something like that. So, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the, the World Series ended a couple days ago. I heard about it, yeah. And, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of, you know, I talk about this all the time, like, whatever. Like, any, any team can beat any team in a playoff series. They're so short. Um, were you nonetheless kind of surprised this was over in six and in Atlanta's favor? I was. I mean, I you know, going into the World Series, I felt pretty good about the Astros' chances. Um, you know, I thought the Braves obviously were a good team. I knew about their pitching, uh, but I just didn't. I didn't know how good their pitching was. To be honest with you, it was much better than I anticipated. And also, you know, I don't think I really factored in all the left-handed pitching they have, which mm. uh, did a great job in the series. Not just left-handed pitching, but really good left-handed pitching. That really did a good job, especially of neutralizing a lot of the Astros' better left-handed hitters. And is that kind of? I mean, that's for me. That's because kind of the story of the series. Whether it was because Braves or rather Astros hitters scuffled, or because Braves pitchers were so good, and probably some sort of balanced combination of both. The the story of the series is just the Astros did not hit as they did in the first hundred and eighty or so games of the season. No, you're right. You're absolutely right about that. And um, and you know I. Uh, believe it had more to do with the Braves pitching um, than it did with the the Astros offense. Although obviously the Astros offense played a part, um, you know, and my broadcast partner, Steve Sparks, and I talked about this um, more off the air, but we did talk about it on the air too throughout the series about how, you know, just watching the games and watching the at-bats that Astros hitters were taking, uh, we didn't really see a drop off in at bat quality and talking with some people uh, in the front office who handle a lot of the analytical stuff the the analytics didn't show that either. Uh, and so, you know, it wasn't a question of, you know, these guys all of a sudden just started chasing all these things out of the zone and, and completely got out of their approach, um, which is again, why I really think that this was more about uh, the Braves pitching extremely well and executing extremely well than it was about, um, you know, Astros hitters just having really bad at bats. Yeah, I think that that pretty much sums it up. No one looked lost at the plate or anything. I did find it interesting that they waited till basically the last two games to shake up the lineup and try something new. And I know that's not, you know, sabermetrically approved, but it seems like it was worth a shot just to see if they could, you know light a fire under Bregman, or maybe he's just hurt and needed to be lower in the lineup. That seemed like a like the one lever that the Astros kind of had to pull in the series, and they did. It just wasn't enough. Yeah, it wasn't enough. It was probably, you know, I mean, I think it's always tricky with lineup changes, um, especially in a short series, because I always think about something that um, Ned Yost, when he managed the Royals and I covered the Royals, I remember he told me and a couple other reporters one time that something Bobby Cox used to say was as a manager, when you're ready to move a hitter down in a lineup, wait another week, uh, which was kind of his way of saying, you know, just give it a little bit more time. But obviously in a short season, you can't do that. A short series, rather, you can't do that. Uh, you have to be more reactive, but then it becomes a question of uh, are you overreacting 
Like, is this, is, are you panicking? Um, you know, and I think back, you know, an example of the, of the Astros not doing this was in 2017, you know, George Springer didn't have the great, a great ALCS. Um, he struggled in game one of the World Series against the Dodgers. And I remember before game two, AJ Hinch was getting questions about moving him down in the lineup. And AJ was very steadfast that he wasn't going to do that. And Springer wanted to be in World Series MVP. So I guess that's the other side of the coin. Uh, and, you know, and Bregman, I mean, you know, same thing. He, he kind of scuffled, you know, he had a good division series, scuffled in the ALCS. Um, you know, given his track record, there's always reason to think he was going to snap out of it. But, yeah, I think by the time, uh, you know, game six rolled around, it was pretty obvious, or game five rolled around, it was pretty obvious that he needed to be dropped in the lineup. But, um, and I mean, honestly, I don't know if they had done it sooner, if it would have really made much of a difference based on how well the Braves pitched. Yeah, I mean... Look, you can shuffle your guys around, but that's maybe one extra at-bat a game. And if the Braves right. pitch like they did, I don't know. One at-bat's not going to do it. I, I did want to ask you kind of about the, the, the vibe of this team. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's whether anyone likes it or not, the you know part of 2017 still hangs over. And, you know, I, I was noticed that Martin Maldonado had a tweet yesterday, you know, thanking the fans and, and, and saying all the right things. And he also had, added the hashtag Houston versus everyone. And... Um, uh, you know, I think any sort of, you know, thoughts about the Astros are, are understandable in a lot of ways. And, you know, people, I think were upset that, you know, some of the, the, the team used those kind of things to help drive them. I was fine with it. Like if that's what, whatever you need to help drive you to be more competitive or, or to drive you. And if you need a chip on your shoulder to do that, I think that's fine. Did you find that to be kind of the, the main kind of vibe of the team this year was just like, it's, it's, it's us versus the world. Oh, absolutely. And I think a couple of things exacerbated that. One, obviously, the fact that every city they went to, they got booed in. Um, and I was kind of curious, beginning of the year, uh, I mean, you knew there were certain places the Astros were definitely going to get a pretty harsh reaction. Like, they opened the year in Oakland. You knew that was going to be a harsh reaction because they've been, you know, fighting for the division the last few years. You knew it was going to be harsh in New York. You know, places where you expected. But, I mean, they got booed in Buffalo. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they, got, they got booed everywhere. It, did, it just didn't matter. I mean, obviously, the reaction was more harsh in the places you'd expect it to be. But they they heard boos all year, particularly Correa, Altuve, Bregman, uh, you know, the guys who were on the team in 2017, the position players. Uh, so I think that led to kind of that mentality. I think the other thing that led to it, too, uh, which I don't know that enough people have really talked about is the fact that um, there was there was no media in the clubhouse this year. Right, so right. it I think that just led to you being in your bubble as a team, as a player, even more so mm-hmm. because you don't have anybody else coming in there offering different perspective. Um, and not to say that, Media being in the clubhouse, you know, it was like this, this, this exchange of viewpoints. But um, because there was nobody else in the clubhouse except the guys on that roster and the coaching staff and the support staff, I think it made it even easier for you to think, you know what? It is us against the world because you, you, you don't see anybody else when you're in when you're in that clubhouse. Um, and I mean, you see people when you're out on the field during batting pack practice once they allowed reporters back in the field. But again, it's easy. It's much easier to avoid media in that scenario um, than it is when they're in the clubhouse. 
So I think that also fueled that us against them mentality. Do you think the newer Astros, you know, the, I don't know, 22 out of 26 players who weren't on the roster in 2017 will continue to take that us against the world mentality as more of the core 2017 Astros leave Correa as a free agent this year? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think as long as they continue to get the reaction they get on the road, probably to a certain extent. And I mean, I think we all know this, right? Athletes look for anything to kind of motivate them. And it was very clear that, um, you know, all the uh, the harshness that the Astros were experiencing on the road and social media and uh, and even in, in mainstream media as well at times, I think kind of fueled that us against the them mentality and us against the world mentality. Um, so I think as long as that continues, um, I think that'll fuel it. And I mean, even, you know, it's funny, like I remember having a conversation with Ryan Stanek, uh, who wasn't on the team in 2017. And, um, you know, he was talking about uh, the reaction they got at Dodger Stadium, which was, again, pretty harsh, as you'd expect uh, when they went there. And he said, you know, people, he's like, people are booing him. And he's like, he's like telling people, he's like, I wasn't even here. Like, why are you, why are you mad at me? I just got traded here. Like, you know, or I just, I just came over and actually Graveman even said, he's like, yeah, I, you know, Graveman came over middle of the year. He's like, they're booing me. He's like, I got, I got traded here. I wasn't even on this team, you know, until end of July. Why are you, why are you booing me? You know, so I think when that stuff happens, it's really easy to think. You know, yeah, this is ridiculous. Like it just, you know, it kind of fuels that 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 us against the world mentality even more, even if you weren't on that team. Do you think this is forever? Like, I mean, do you think Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman are both signed through through the twenty twenty four seasons? Um, do you think in twenty twenty five that they'll still be getting booed on the road like this? I mean, in certain places, probably. I mean, I just, I mean, sports fans have long memories. I mean, Carlos Beltran was getting booed in Houston from 2005 through 2016. Every time he came to the plate, he got booed, regardless of what team he was playing for. Then, of course, he comes over in 2017, comes back to the Astros, uh, and is no longer getting booed. Um, but uh, And then, you know, he was one of the, the big people behind the whole uh, <laughs> yeah. sign stealing, which makes it, it end you know, well. just kind of ironic. Uh, but... Um, yeah, sports fans have long memories. Um, I mean, Carlos Beltran was getting booed in Kansas City after he left there, too. Um, I mean, maybe it wasn't as harsh in 2012 as it was in, you know, 2005, but it's it was still there. Um, so, yeah, as a team, you know, maybe not over time, but certainly, um, yeah, like you said, Altuve, Bregman, you know, even Springer, I mean, I know, you know, talking with people with the Blue Jays about how Springer really hurt it in a lot of places. Um, I think those people are probably always going to to get booed in certain places. Maybe not everywhere, but the, the places where you'd expect the fans to be most upset. Do you think this affects the Astros in any way as far as free agency goes? Like players are going to go, oh, I don't want to go there. I don't want to deal with that. You know, that's, a, that's something I've wondered about. I thought it might this past offseason more so. Um, and I, I don't really know that it did. I mean, I think ultimately players want to go someplace where they can win. Um, and, you know, the last few years, the Astros have been a place where you could do that. And then when you think about it, you know, I mean, obviously Brent Strom departing is a huge loss, um, as I know Kevin knows very well. Uh, but, I mean, if you're, a, if you're a pitcher the last few years, 
uh, and you get a chance to work with Brent Strom knowing what great work he's done. I think, you know, stuff like that uh, supersedes, you know, any sort of reaction. And if the Astros can, you know, somehow continue to make pitchers better, you know, using talking about pitchers here as an example, if they continue to help make pitchers better, um, you know, I think uh, guys will still want to want to play for the Astros. Um, and if, as long as they continue to win, I think guys are going to, you know, still want to play for, for the Astros. Uh, I kind of want to talk about, you, you know, you talked about Brett, Brett Strom retiring or, or walking away from the Astros, at least felt like kind of the end of an era for me, um, as does Carlos Correa. You know, Carlos Correa in many ways was kind of the first big acquisition of the previous administration um, as the first overall pick. And uh, likely, um, not 100 percent, but let's face it, likely to had his last at bat with the Houston Astros. Um, and at the same time, like Correa kind of seemed to have filled the void left by Springer in terms of, of clubhouse leadership and things like that. Um, I mean, can you talk about I, I God, I just said, can you talk about I'm the worst media member <laughs> in the history of America. Can you talk about um, Walk me through. Walk me through. Uh, Carlos Correa is, is, I mean, you got to watch him 162 games a year. Well, when he's healthy. But you got to watch him you know, for your entire time with the Astros. Um, just how big a loss is this going to be when he ends up going elsewhere? So I told this story, actually, uh, in the ninth inning of game six. Uh, Steve and I were talking, you know, Correa batted. You know, we obviously talked about how this could be this, you know, is this going to be his last plate appearance in an Astros uniform? And I told the story, and I don't know that I'd ever said it on the air before, um, but I told a story about um, one of my first spring trainings with the Astros. You know, I started in 2013, um, and I don't remember if it was 2013. I think it was 2014. Um, Enos Cabell, who, you know, former player, uh, you know, worked for the Astros for a long time. And the best. The best. And as Kevin knows, um, you know, not afraid to speak his mind. No, then the best storyteller I know. Everything from baseball to talking to you about going to Studio Fifty Four in the seventies. He's amazing. I haven't heard of Studio Fifty Four stories. You got to get the Studio Fifty Four stories. Cabell. The next time I see him, <laughs> exactly. But um, but yeah, I mean, you know, just just the best, and uh, you know, I, I always love talking to Enos. And um, I remember I was on the backfield. Uh, again, I think it was twenty fourteen spring training. And chatting with Enos Cabell, um, and Correa was on that backfield taking ground balls. And Enos Cabell and I were standing in the dugout in Kissimmee, where the Astros used to have spring training on this backfield. And um, we were just talking about different prospects and things like that. And Cabell points out at Correa, and he says to me, now he used more colorful language than I'm going to use. You could use the language if you'd like. It's up to you. <laughs> he said, uh, he said, when that guy comes up, that's when we're going to win. <laughs> and he was pointing at Correa when he said it. And I mean, you know, he, I mean, he couldn't have been more correct. Um, and Sparks told the story at the same, you know, around that same time when we were talking about Correa, about how he remembers Enos Cabell telling him around the same time period that Correa is going to be a leader as soon as he gets to the big leagues, which... I mean, that's a bold claim. I mean, how many guys can you say that about? But I mean, it's, it's pretty accurate. Um, and you know, you talk about the loss of Springer and obviously that was a big loss, but Springer wasn't a leader in the way that you think of a leader. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and this is no knock on Springer at all. Springer is the energy guy. Right. He right. is the guy who, you know, is always going to bring the energy. He's the guy who, a, you know, a Sunday day game in Kansas City when it's 90 degrees is still going to be bouncing around and everybody's just going to feed off of that. Um, that's that's what Springer brings. Whereas Correa is more of what you think of and I think is of, is more of what fans think of when they think of like a leader on a team. Like someone who's not afraid to speak up when he sees something or wants to address something with a player or, uh, you know, some, I mean, he was the captain of that infield for sure. Um, in terms of positioning guys, he was, I mean, there was not a mound visit by either a catcher or a pitching coach or a manager or whomever where Carlos Correa was not as part of that mound visit over the last few years. Um, and, you know, and it didn't matter like, because I remember when I first started seeing him do that, you know, at first I thought, oh, he's doing this with a lot of the, you know, the the Latin pitchers, uh, you know, maybe to break the language barrier or whatever. But no, he, he did it for everyone. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think you can really quantify how significant of a loss that it, that would be for the Astros, assuming Correa doesn't come back, doesn't, you know, resign with the Astros. Uh, to have that leadership. I mean, obviously, you can look at the numbers and, you know, I mean, I think I thought he should have won a gold glove last year, although J.P. Crawford had a really good year. I think he should win the gold glove this year. Um, you know, you can talk about that. You can talk about the offensive numbers and, and all of those things. He was able to stay healthy the whole year, which was always the big knock on him in the past. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, there's all that. But, um, yeah, the leadership, I think, is what the Astros for sure are going to miss the most if Correa departs. Is there kind of an, a, a candidate in your mind for someone who becomes that 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 person for the team? That's a good question. Um, you know, there are guys on that team who certainly provide leadership in different ways. Like I think Brantley's kind of like the, uh, you know, speak softly, but when he speaks, you listen. Um I think Altuve is kind of similar in that regard. Um, but I don't know that there's anyone else. And Maldonado definitely has some some leadership. For sure. It's tough to beat a leader when you're hitting 170 at times, though. Right. That's that's very true. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, he certainly, you know, with, with a lot of the young pitchers that the Astros have had the last couple of years, he's really taken the bull by the horns um, and has been a leader in that way. Um, but yeah, I don't know that there is someone who would profile to be similar in that regard. And obviously not exactly the same, but I don't know that there's anyone who, who I could even think of who would provide even some of that, um, you know, the same way that, that Correa did. Is there a pitching kind of a pitching counterpart to Correa on this team? Like the, the hitting core seems very solid and you can trace these guys back a while and yeah, no, I, I can't really think of anyone on the on the pitching side, really. Um, and, you know, pitching is so different anyway. I mean, I think it's rare for starting pitchers to be leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens, but I think it's rare because I think it's almost like the nature of being a starting pitcher is it's very much about your day and what you're doing every fifth day and, and everything leading up to that. Um, but, yeah, I don't know that there's really – I mean, even over the last few years, like since I've been with the Astros, I don't know that there's really been, uh, you know, anyone on the on the pitching side 
uh, you know, quite that way. Like, I, you know, I keep thinking back to like a James Shields type. There's no, there hasn't been anybody like that. Um, you know, uh, uh, at least not in the time that I've, that I've been here uh, with the Astros. I want to, can we get back to kind of the us against the world mentality thing where it felt like um, a lot of Astros fandom adopted that as well. Um, at times, maybe a little too much where it got into a bit of denial or or kind trying to spread blame and things like that um is that kind of what you saw from astros fandom yeah i i I would agree um and you know it's funny you know a lot of the folks on social media you know they call themselves astros twitter you know yeah and um which i think is great i mean i think yeah no they're off they're, they're yeah they're awesome for the most part you know and i interact with many of them i you know and i only follow a handful of of Astros fans for a reason. And that this was true even before any of this stuff came to light with the illegal sign stealing. Um, because I think, and I think it's very obvious on social media more so than anywhere else. You, you never want to forget fan is short for fanatic. Um, I think it's always important to remember that. Um, and so there is a tendency for a lot of fans to look at things through rose colored glasses and, um, to also sometimes have that us against the them us against the world mentality, especially when something happens, you know, with the Astros getting disciplined the way they did, um, and all the other fan bases or a lot of the other fan bases really turning on them. Uh, it's I think it's very easy to, you know, just kind of turn inward and and you know try to fight all the haters or. You know, all that stuff. And I mean, I I stay as far away from that sort of stuff as I possibly can because I just don't think it's productive. And I, you know, I, I, I think I look at this this stuff in a much more nuanced way than your average Astros fan does, because, I mean, obviously, I'm not I'm not an Astros fan in the in the traditional sense of a fan, um, even though obviously I want the you know, I want the Astros to win every game and I want them to win the World Series every year. Um and so, yeah, I, de- I definitely think that, you know, one thing that I wish, uh, and I feel this way, I felt this way when I was in Kansas City to a certain extent as well, when I used to cover the Royals, uh, you know, doing, you know, pre and post and, and post-game call-in shows and stuff like that. Um, I really wish, and maybe this is just because I'm from New York and this is kind of the way New Yorkers act. <laughs> uh, I almost wish that, Astros fans adopted this mindset like, yeah, so we got, you know, we were stealing signs illegally. We got caught. So what? Like, that's not my problem. Like, if you if you have a problem with it, too bad. You know, I almost wish that and there were some of our fans who did have that attitude, but I wish more of our fans had that attitude instead of trying to, especially in the social media context, trying to uh, uh, rationalize it or read, well, other teams are cheating or, and maybe they were, but like, whatever. I mean, try to tell a cop when he pulls you over for speeding that other people were speeding um, and see how far that gets you. It doesn't matter. You were the one who got caught. Um, and uh, you'll almost certainly get a ticket when you say that to a cop. Uh, so like, I, I, I kind of wish more of our fans or our fan base in general just kind of adopt this mentality of, yeah, okay, so yeah, that happened. And like, what's your point? They're not getting the, they're not giving the trophy back. Flags fly forever. Um, 
people aren't giving back World Series rings. So, you know, okay, so you're upset. Big deal. I really wish more of our fans adopted that mentality. Mm. It seems like a unique part of the human condition that uh, you can gain an advantage illicitly and then be aggrieved by that. Like, somehow take that as a slight to you that means you're disrespected. Like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's kind of funny. And I don't know, I just, um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's such a I don't know that there's really any sort of parallel to this in the sports world. Um, I mean, maybe to a lesser extent, the stuff that happened with the Patriots and they were caught filming. And, yeah, I was going to say Patriots. Um, but even like like the deflate gate thing that to me, that was the dumbest pro sports scandal ever <laughs> I was so tired. I mean, I don't, and I'm, I'm far from a Patriots fan as a matter of fact I'm a New York Giants fan and they beat the Patriots twice in the Super Bowl so I think the Patriots are great um, <laughs> I have no issue with the Patriots but I thought that was the dumbest scandal ever um, so but yeah like to have something like this where um, you know your manager and general manager gets suspended and then subsequently fired um and, you know, people just questioning this championship that you won, you know, for, for forever. I mean, there will always be that question. And, you know, unless the Astros win another one here and then, you know, in another year or so. I mean, that's that's always going to be it's like, well, they, they have that one World Series, but it will always be tainted. Um, and, although you know, people will always wonder how much of an effect, you know, the illegal sign stealing had and, you know, whether you know, how much it, it impacted them winning the World Series and all of that. Um, it's just so tricky. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one of those things, like I've told many people who've asked me about it, um, did it have an effect? Of course it did. But how much of an effect did it have? I mean, that is impossible to know. Right. I right. mean, this is a really good team. You don't win a World Series unless you're really good. You don't win 101 games like the Astros did that year simply because you're banging on trash cans. It's just not you know, how this sport works or any sport works for that matter. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there, there's always going to be those questions as to how much was going on and how much, how much of an impact it had. Uh, I, I kind of want to, I want to pivot from the Astros to, to Robert Ford as a subject matter. Um, let's do that. Um, I've always been a huge fan of you. You are very much, uh, I'm a big fan of self-made people. You are uh, beyond a self-made, but you are someone who started this by, um, literally just recording yourself calling games, um, sending out tapes, starting in the minors, working your way up. Uh, this is, it, it's not the standard path for your, for most people in this business. No. Yeah. I mean, everybody's got to start somewhere, I guess. I mean, I, I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, you, you, the, the goal is to get on the air somehow. And, um, I, you know, I, it was just the way that I came up with, you know, when I was, you know, out of college and trying to figure out how to get a, a play-by-play job, uh, you know, going, you know, sitting in the stands at Mets and Yankees games at Shea Stadium at Old Yankee Stadium and doing play-by-play into a tape recorder. Like, this was just... Did you find, like, a seat that was kind of away from the rest of the crowd so you didn't look like a madman? <laughs> Not at Yankee Stadium. At Yankee Stadium, the game that I was at was a Yankees Red Sox game. Oh my God. Um, and I was in the upper deck. I was behind home plate, but I was in the upper deck at old Yankee stadium. And Oh yeah, I was surrounded by fans. And that was the first game actually that I did into a tape recorder. Uh, and, um, first baseball game. And I remember like all the trepidation I had 
before I started, before the game started. Because it's, you know, I mean, you're, I mean, I was elbow to elbow with people. And I had my scorebook and I had a, a handful of notes that I had written down. Um, and uh, I just remember thinking it was like right before the first pitch of the game was about to be thrown. And I remember thinking to myself, well, it's now or never. And so I just started. And yeah, of course, some people turn and look at you. And, but uh, <laughs> what was funny is, um, you know, after a while, people just leave you alone. Uh, or they ask you questions like, are you a scout? Uh, which was always my favorite question whenever I when are I get scout Scouts notable play, for giving yeah, play calling by play. play by play into a tape recorder. This is what scouts do. This is how. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, um, and I used to get that question too when I'd go to games as a fan, and because I always kept score, mm-hmm. I don't. I'd get that question too. Uh, do scouts keep score? I I did in a weird way. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, I feel like I mean Kevin could speak on this more. I feel like most scouts do in some way. Yeah. Some, they have some way of keeping track of what's going on. Yeah, at least the people you're looking at. So wait, did yeah. you throw it to imaginary color guys, or did you just Vin Scully it? No, it was just me. I was just solo. And uh, and what was funny is, and I didn't realize this until later when I listened back to the tape, um, there was in that Yankees-Red Sox game that I did, and this was 2001, um, there was a, a big moment in the game. And it wanted to be in a great game. Uh, Mariano Rivera gave up a, a game-tying home run to Manny Ramirez in the ninth. And then Luis Soho won it with a, a walk-off RBI single off Rod Beck in the bottom of the ninth. I just like saying these names again. because <laughs> That's a lot of very 2001 guys. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I remember there was a moment, you know, it was a big moment in the game. And I, I said something, I said uh, something to the effect of, you know, the crowd's really getting into it. And, they're, you know, they're getting louder. And when I listen back to the tape, after I said that, somebody sitting near me goes, he said we're getting loud. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember when I listened back to it, I had to like rewind it because I was like, did that really just happen? Um, So it was pretty funny. So, you know, in a way, this, you know, the 50,000 people were were assisting me in in making my demo. When you listen back to those tapes now, if you do, um, you know, you have you have thousands of games in the books by now do you listen back to those tapes now and go oh god this is awful or do you go man i was i was pretty good i mean yes I, a little of both um yeah i mean my voice sounded terrible i didn't know how to properly properly modulate my voice i was hoarse afterwards i was shouting more than actually just talking um but yeah when i when i do listen back to it um and i've have listened back to parts of it you know over the years since it's one of those things where I'm like, well, yeah, I, there, there's there's some stuff here. Like I could see somebody. I'd hire that guy. Yeah, I could see someone <laughs> who's looking to hire someone with very little experience and think, okay, this guy, this guy has this guy has an idea. Um, and uh, so yeah, there you know, and there are things like, uh, um, who was it? Uh, Bernie Williams, Homer, Pedro Martinez started that game for the Red Sox, um, who's my all-time favorite pitcher to watch. Just as an aside. Um, and I used to, I mean, I saw him pitch at least six times in person at Yankee stadium when he was with Boston, um, which is probably part of the reason why I chose that game to, to do this. Uh, but I remember Pedro Martinez gave up a home run early in that game to Bernie Williams. And I had in my notes that, um, Bernie Williams, uh, was only the second left-handed hitter to Homer off of Pedro Martinez, the other being Jason Giambi. Um, and you know, I remember like maybe five years ago listening back and hearing that i'm like wow that's really good like, good job yeah 
Yeah. All right. Yeah. Nice job. Nice job, younger Robert Ford. Um, so yeah, I, I do. I do. Yeah. So yes and no to answer your question. I see where there was like a foundation there, but by the same token, it's like yeah, there's some parts of this that are cringeworthy. Um, before we let you go, I did want to ask you one other question about about your gig and and being Robert Ford, which is that you know there's been a lot of talk and and some effort put into um, bringing more diversity to front offices. Um, you are uh in some ways a unicorn as a black play-by-play announcer uh is there anything being done on an organized level to bring more diversity to the radio booths there there is um you know i'm actually involved in something uh you know at the minor league level um the black play-by-play fund which started last year um and it was started by um, adam giardino who is a broadcaster for university of connecticut and he's done a lot of minor league baseball he uh uh, he's done uh, games for, for the uh, AAA team in Scranton, Wilkes-Barre. And um, he reached out to me. I had never met him. We had a bunch of people in common because um, he had worked in the Eastern League with Trenton. And, you know, I knew, you know, and I had worked in the Eastern League with Binghamton years before. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of people in common. And he reached out to me out of the blue, um, you know, asking me if this was, you know, he's, he was basically, he was, he reached out to me like, he was basically like, I'm thinking of starting this, Um this fund, this program to fund, um, you know, a three thousand uh, dollar scholarship uh, for a uh, black play-by-play person to work for a minor league baseball team, and it would basically be to supplement whatever uh, this broadcaster would be getting as part of an internship uh, working for a minor league baseball team doing broadcasting. And so he presented this idea to me, um, you know, middle of the the pan- pandemic. Um, and I thought it was interesting, um, but I also w- wasn't sure how serious he was. Um, so I said to him, um, yeah, I think this is great. And he was tr- still trying to raise money for it, trying to figure out how he was going to do this. Um, and I said, um, if you're able to raise money for one $3,000 scholarship, I will fund a second $3,000 scholarship myself. And that was my way of saying, um, you know, hey, I want to see if you're serious about this. And he wound up raising way more than than even the six thousand. Um, and uh, you know, this is the second year of it. Um, you know, there've been you know the interviews are ongoing. I was actually a part of a couple of them. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago to you know identify more candidates um, because I think one of the impediments, and I and part of the reason I like this this black play by play fund, and it's on Twitter and on social media, um, definitely check it out, um, website and everything, um, is, uh, one of the impediments to more diversity in broadcasting is that a lot of times you have to take a vow of poverty to work your way up as a, uh, play by play person. And that's obviously a lot easier to do when you have more you know, you come from better means. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah. then you look yeah. at the statistics and, you know, black families have one tenth of the generational wealth of white families. Um, yeah, it's just like institutionalized barriers. Yeah, that's a huge, that's a huge, huge barrier. Your your first gig was with the Hillsborough Hops, is that right? Well, they're, they're now the Hillsborough Hops. They're, they were the Yakima Bears in Yakima, Washington. Can you can I ask you how much you made as the play by play person for the Yakima Yeah, Bears? I made for the summer it was a shade under four thousand dollars before taxes. I remember my take home pay 
I got paid bi-weekly. My take-home pay was $549 every two weeks. Where did mm-hmm. you live? With a host family um, that also owned a chain of sandwich shops in Yakima that they let me eat at for half price when I lived with them. So I ate a lot of sandwiches that summer. <laughs> what was your go-to sandwich that summer? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know that I stuck with one. I would, I would vary it up. I go ham and cheese or they did a really good Italian sandwich. Kind of vary it up. I still keep it. It was a husband and wife. They were empty nesters. Um, and the husband, uh, Ron, he passed away several years ago. But Kathy, the, my host mom, we still keep in touch and, um, you know, through social media and everything. Uh, but yeah, they were, they were, they were great to me. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't have been able to live out there uh, on the money I was making without having a host family. Mm. So if people want to hear, learn more about this fund, what do they do? Um, the uh, website is a uh, black play by play fund, uh, .org, Um, and it's on, on, uh, Twitter as well. Uh, if you search for black play by play fund, you can, I don't remember exactly the Twitter handle, but you can find it pretty easily. Uh, if you go on Twitter, um, and, uh, yeah. And obviously if anybody has any questions about it, they can always ask me as well on Twitter at RA43, uh, or questions about anything. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a great program and I'm really glad we're doing it. I think, yeah, there, there definitely needs to be more that needs to be done. Um, and, um, I think it, it really starts with the grassroots level. I think things can be, need to be done at the big league level as well. Um, you know, that would certainly help. Like you mentioned, there's been a lot of talk about diversifying front offices. And I think attention needs to be played to diversifying the broadcasters, because I think that's how you bring in fans. That's one way to diversify your fan base and to keep your sport thriving and to prevent it mm-hmm. from dying and becoming a niche sport. Uh, if people see and hear people doing games who look and sound like them, whether they're black, whether they're Latino, whether they're Asian, uh, you know, whether they're, they're, they're women, I think that, I think that can only help. And I think if you're a baseball fan and you love this sport, it should be something you should be behind a hundred percent. Absolutely. Uh, Robert, I want to thank you for coming on. If you, again, if you want to follow Robert on Twitter and ask him about the Astros or the black pay by play fund or sandwiches, he is at RA for three Robert have a, a great off season.
Back to the podcast. Thanks to Robert Ford. Um, I got to know Robert a little bit before he even was with the Astros and before I was with the Astros. Um, he was with the Royals and I was in the media and he was actually a guest as that on, on my previous podcast. And um, the thing I always like about Robert is, so, well, so many things, but one of my favorite things about Robert is when you ask him a question, you know you're going to get a thoughtful response. You know he's going to think about hear your question consider it and then talk and it's just a, it's, it's, it's a wonderful quality to have and i wish i had it more yeah i'm more he's of a, the uh talk than consider yeah he's the a, wrong order yeah he's a great guy um it's time to talk about our musical guest and i'm about to read to you sentences that i never thought i'd ever read in my life you're listening to dr colossus dr colossus is from australia um and they are a doom metal band you like doom metal band you know, I can appreciate some of the, basically some of the melodies, but it's Follow not really question. my cup of tea. Do you, do you like The Simpsons? Uh, I don't think I've watched The Simpsons in 20 years. Excellent. I, I'm not a Simpsons guy either, but plenty of people are, and this is what you should know, is Dr. Colossus is not your average doom band. They are fully committed to writing entire albums with their lyrical themes based directly on Simpsons episodes. Interesting. Along with big, meaty, down-tuned riffs, they bring a complete theatrical experience to their live shows with stage props, donning the outfits of the stonecutters, all combined with their outlandish on-stage antics. It's not a gig, but a full-on experience. It's a band that takes not taking themselves too seriously, very seriously. And they approach it all with a little tongue-in-cheek attitude. So... Wait, I have a Dr. <laughs> Colossus question for you here. I don't know if I'll be able to answer you, but go ahead. Do you think they're a medical doctor, or is this more of a PhD situation? I would bet Dr. Colossus is some sort of Simpsons reference that neither you or I get. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, but you're listening to things off uh, their third full-length album, which is titled I'm a Stupid Moron with an Ugly Face and a Big Butt and My Butt Smells I'd Like to Kiss My Own Butt, which was released in May. <laughs> um, they have played with Red Fang, Acid King, 
Brant Bjork, Beast Wars, and more. Um, they teamed up with a USA band called Ned Flanders on an Oakley Doakley tour that went through Australia and New Zealand. Um, I like Australians and New Zealanders. They're a wonderfully strange people. This is a wonderfully strange band. If you would like to know, to know, know more about them, you go to drcolossustheband.com. <laughs> Deep that's, breaths. That's the best one you've had so far that I've been on. <laughs> I don't know about that, but it's something else. Uh, I really thought I... that the strange part was going to be about their name, and the name no. just wasn't even worth mentioning at the it's end. It's a doom metal band based on Simpsons episodes. With a 75-word album it's, title it's, it's uh it's one of those things that very much matches like if you know if, if you put a typewriter in front of 100 monkeys eventually they type shakespeare if there's people a, te- if people keep making music eventually there's a doom metal band that bases all their songs on simpsons episodes there is a simpsons episode where they find out that mr burns's mansion has a room of countless monkeys on countless typewriters <laughs> so there, there's your link uh i think it is interesting that doom metal is so at least in my experience, so focused on the music and like the guitars and stuff. Yeah, sure. You honestly probably could do this with a lot of the words, and I wouldn't notice. I mean, Sigur Ross doesn't—they sing in Icelandic, and I don't right. know. Like that—that's never affected my enjoyment of them. Understood. But, are you ready yeah. for? Are you ready for emails? I am. Email the show. Chinmusic at fangrass.com. I got to say, like, our emails were, they were okay this week. They weren't great. And then I put a tweet out last night and I got like eight great emails. So if you don't hear it this week, you might hear it next week. And I, we always appreciate it. And um, when I tweet out that uh, we're looking for emails and someone sends, what's the address again? I go, that's not the kind of person I want emailing me. Yeah, that that makes sense. You want the text that have their own editors. Exactly. And I want the people who already know the address and have it ingrained in their head. Our first email comes from Kyle. Ben, this is a question I want you to put your noggin into. You ready? I'm ready. Kyle says, hi, Kevin, an 80-grade co-host. That's you, 80-grade wow. co-host. 80-grade, thank you. I was taking a look at the stats of some players, and it got me wondering, how do teams value players, particularly hitters, who are more consistent performers? Say you had to pick two players. One had an OPS. I should say Ooh. ops. I should say ops. I, I should stick to my brand here. One has an ops of 800, and his ops in each month is somewhere between 750 and 850. The other also has an 800 ops. But his month-to-month splits fluctuate between 500 and 1100. Which one would you rather have? Assume that, assume that you cannot bench the inconsistent player during his cold streaks. And by how much? My gut tells me you take the more consistent player. However, most fans overstate the difference in value between the two. Is this difference between them quantifiable? So here you go. You have two 800 OPS players. One is every month going to be between 750 and 850. And the other one's going to be between 500 and 1100. Do you have a preference? So, my brain goes a few places. One is that the guy who's hot and cold uh, will have more plate appearances when he's hot and less when he's cold because the team will be performing better. Be performing hot. better. So that's okay. interesting. That's a that's a mark in his favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I came from it. I came to it with the same like initial idea as Kyle that I would take the more consistent one. I think it really matters what the rest of your team is built like. I mean, that's, you know, kind of a, a pat answer that doesn't really give away much, but let me put it this way. If your team is the type of team that is likely to be an underdog in the playoffs, I think you want more variance. If you have a guy who can play like playoff Eddie Rosario or regular season Eddie Rosario, 
that's a lot more useful to you if you're the Braves than if you're the Dodgers. Because the Dodgers' steady state makes them favored against a bunch of teams. So you'd probably prefer to have a guy who's not going to be, you know, clunking up the joint at an inopportune time. Whereas if you if you think you're going to be behind, then I feel like you want to increase variance in general. And this is a good way to do that. The guy who a couple of months a year is going to be an aircraft carrier. Yeah, exactly. Like if you're if you think that you're an underdog in the you know, whatever way you want to look at this. I think you want to court variance. Yeah, it's... I don't know if there's a huge difference in... Because at the end of the day, runs are runs. Not somebody runs the guy was worth over the course of 162. And if it's the same player, I think it's kind of the same. And I do... I didn't think about your more at-bats thing. I almost wonder if that makes him more valuable because his WPA would be better. Yeah. Um, and also just like, I think his... If he is really alternating between 500 and 1100, his ops, there you go, his OPS will be higher. So I guess maybe that that yeah that, that yeah, counterfeits yeah. the point of this question. So maybe we ignore I w- that. Yeah, I will say this much. I think if you if, if if we were able to be joined right now by all 30 major league managers and we presented this to them, they would take the consistent guy and it would take them less than half a second to answer. Oh yeah, that's they love managers love comfort just plug them in every day and know what you're going to get professional so it means so so much to them yeah you know it's it's uh um when's the free agent thing coming out monday monday um so our, our free agent rankings come out monday um they there's 50 of them we split up the writing assignments many people are writing many players and i wrote about and i won't talk about originally but i wrote about avasayo garcia avasayo garcia is the second guy you talked about where he can kill you for a month and then absolutely carry you for a month. And I wrote, and he drives teams insane because of it. Um, but that that's your that's that's your Avisayel Garcia. Yeah. I uh, I think that's right. And he's also the perfect avatar of that because he's tooled out like crazy. Oh I don't and you convince that. yourself, like, man, if he puts this together, he'll just be a nine hundred OPS guy. And sometimes he does for twenty five games. Right. You know? Um our next email comes from Patrick. Patrick says, how transparent are baseball operations departments in relations to other teams? In essence, do teams have a good idea as to the quality of personnel and other teams? If a team contacted you inquiring about some under-the-radar personnel in Houston, who would be a good addition to their team? Can you tell them something they don't already know? Um, this is a timely, timely email, Patrick, because it is that time of year. Um Oh, is that the time of year where everyone interviews for the Mets job and then turns it down? Exactly. Or, or just doesn't interview at all <laughs> or, or withdraws their name for consideration. While all of that is going on, and that is obviously a very public, high-profile position that you read about on a daily basis, if not an hourly one on Twitter, that is happening across hundreds of positions uh, for, from analyst to double-A hitting coach Hundreds of positions are now in the hiring and also, just like the Mets GM search, the permission aspect. Um, It was something when I worked for the Astros we dealt with every year because teams want to steal people from super successful teams. Right. Um, And so the permissions are a nightmare. I know the Giants are right now dealing with an unbelievable number. The Astros deal with an unbelievable number every year. Um, and still do because they're still um, an amazing player development group and a, a credible front office. Um, uh, there's, there's still a lot of really smart people there that people want. Um, and so 
the answer is they kind of know what that person is and they kind of know what they do, but they might not know the quality of, of what they do. Um, I just kind of wanted to bring this up because like, I just want to A, say this is happening all over the place and, and, and B, like just to reinforce this, and this is like not some weird flex or anything, but I have my phone either via a, a, a an actual phone call or a text every day. Every business day, every Monday through Friday for the last three weeks, I'm at, I'm at, I'm at like 18 straight days where wow. somebody from a team has reached out to me to say, we're talking about this guy. What do you know about this guy? Or, hey, we're looking for this kind of person. Is there anyone you'd recommend? Yeah. It's constant. This is like the hiring slash retaining season that's going on right now is a gigantic, it takes, is a huge time sink. And I, I, that's a negative. Like it's, it's something you want to do because you want to keep your good people and everything. And you also, if you're a, a team that behaves properly, you want to let your good people succeed elsewhere if that's where they're, they're best to go. Um, but it is an unbelievable constant right now. And it, it happens throughout October and well into November. And it's just, it's constant and it's very strange. And, you know, every, almost everybody, some teams try to work it differently and screw their people by putting them on contracts that are, um, that follow the off cycle. That follow, that follow the, the normal calendar, so they're January through December contracts. Right. Uh, but the overwhelming majority, and I mean like 90-something percent of, of contracts, end on October 31st. Um, and so uh, it's it's happening for everyone right now. It's unbelievable. It's crazy. It's a crazy time in, in, in baseball every year at this time. So I've actually given a lot of thought to this question in a different field. But in my last job, it was very similar. People's production is all hidden, right? You don't actually get to see what this mid-tier analyst for X team or what this pitching, this minor league pitching coach at AA did exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the, the whole point that teams are doing is that their stuff isn't open source. They're not, they're not saying, well, you know, this guy we think improved our team batting average by five points or our team OBP by five points, or you know, this guy helped us make acquisitions. So you can learn by how a team regards its internal people, how well they're doing, but you really have to rely on the, kind of right. word of mouth network. So it makes a ton of sense that you're getting a lot of calls because like other teams aren't going to help you. And a lot of these jobs are until you get to the very high ranks, kind of just necessarily anonymous. I, I was, Joe, I was talking to someone like an hour ago and I just joked, like, I swear to God, every time I get this, I should say it's a hundred bucks. <laughs> I'd have the down payment for a house at this point. Yeah. I, uh, but the word of mouth thing seems very important. How else do you learn? Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's what happens. So teams like, no, like, that's the thing. Like teams go, oh, the Giants are good. Giants seem to make do a really, man, look at it. Look at how successful they were. Look at, look at how all their minor league hitters exceeded our projections this year. Right. Let's, who's their hitting coordinator? You know, and it, it, it kind of turns into that. Um, anyway, our next email comes from Alex. Alex says, I'm going to the Dominican Republic in a few weeks. That is awesome, Alex. That place is awesome. Within our itinerary are three Lee Dome games, two in Santo Domingo and one in Santiago. Real quick, Alex, I'm very glad that you're going to Santo Domingo and Santiago because too many people go to the Dominican Republic and go end up on the beach and tourist side of things. And that's not really the Dominican Republic. That is a antiseptic uh, created for tourist versions. I'm glad you're going to see the real part of the country. It's awesome. I'm reaching out today with questions about the youth academies, which I'd love to check out. Temporarily setting aside the broader societal issues that make kids so dependent on baseball as a ticket to a healthy and fruitful lives that you've all covered so well with Jesse Sanchez, I'm fascinated by the operations and the purity of the game when played on rundown fields in the countryside. 
I loosely follow each year's J2 class, and I would love to connect a place to the grainy YouTube videos I watch of workouts. Are these academies open to the public? Do you recommend going to see what's happening? Does it matter if an academy is open to a team versus a local Buscan? Or is everything just closed off? I envision rumbling down a dirt road to find a set of local gritty fields, but maybe these are fully built out complexes. Any, is there anything else I should know? Alex, the first thing you should know is you're not going to get in. Um, <laughs> I understand why you want to go. I would totally love to go if I was just a fan. Um, the academies are not open to the public. Um, the academies are all gated. And at that gate is a guard, and that guard has a firearm. I guarantee it. Um, it is they are secured places uh, for multiple reasons, but they are not open to the public for workouts or, or games or whatever. You have to be part of baseball to get into an academy. Um, the quality of the academy, uh, the fields are beautiful. They are not local gritty fields. There's literally thousands of local gritty fields in the Dominican Republic, and I, I would ask you to. As you were, once you, uh, as you're flying in, and once you get over the island itself, just look down because it's a real, it's a, such a fun thing because all you can see are baseball fields everywhere. It's, it's awesome. Um, and so, but the academies themselves are closed. The fields are beautiful. Um, some academies are, uh, they're all nice. Some of them are more simply workmanlike. Um, all academies have dormitories. Players live there. Um, you know, dormitories that can house anywhere between uh, 40 to 100 players. Um, they all have, uh, classrooms. They all have uh, a cafeteria. Um, some are very workmanlike. Others, um, such as the Cubs and the Yankees, come to mind, are like absolute palaces um, and are absolutely beautiful. Um, and they are all. Uh, it, there's so many interesting stories about the academies. Uh, they're, they're really kind of there's like three main kind of clusters of them. The Astros Academy is literally right next to the Royals Academy. If you hit a ball on field number two to right field hard enough, you it'll land on one of their fields. Um, <laughs> And, and you're a five minute drive from six or seven others. So there's, there's like these, there's like these three clusters, um, where most of the academies are. Um, and they are super fun, but you can't go. And I'm, I'm sorry because you should see them. They're, they're a super awesome thing to do, but it, it's, um, I have an aside for you that I think you'll find amazing. Shoot. So, um, the Houston, like I said, the Astros and the Royals Academy literally butt up against one another, right? Right. And both of these teams built those academies, but they leased the land. Okay. All right. So they're, they're, they're leasing the land in the Dominican Republic. Do you know who they write that check to? Hmm. I'm going to guess that it is a former player. Yes. I'm going to guess that because you asked me this, it is not someone prominent. He was pretty prominent during his time. Not an MVP or anything, but he was. there were years where he was... I, I, I would bet he made an all-star game. I'm going to Google his name right now and, and see if he made an all-star game. But he was a good player. Oh, then I'm not going to get this. It was Raphael for call. That's who gets the check. Oh, wow. I wouldn't... Yeah, like I said, I never would have guessed that. Yeah, Raphael for call gets the check. Um, Love Raphael for call. Three-time all-star Raphael for call. Yeah, deservedly so. Yeah. So, yeah. So, when the, and the Astros and the Royals write their check for the lease of the land. They make it up to Raphael for call. Um, which always just made me laugh. That is pretty funny. That uh, our, yeah, it's good for him, man. Yeah, it's a smart, smart investment. Um, our final email comes from JD, and JD says, "So honestly, I feel a little weird asking this question, but here it goes. How come Major League Baseball is the only major American sport you care about? I get that we like what we like, and we don't like what we don't like, and sometimes it's as simple as that. Cool. 
I was just curious if A, you had some takes on other sports and why you don't care for them and don't pay attention to them, or B, what is it about baseball that really gets you going compared to the other big sports? Uh, I do have an answer to this. Um, I'm not really a sports fan. I, I don't consider myself a sports fan. I'm a baseball fan. I tend not to be a big fan of sports culture. Uh, uh, I tend not to be a fan at all of kind of fandom culture, which is why I really dislike college sports, probably. Yeah. Um, so uh, other sports and and football, basketball, hockey, I'll fall into this, um, are all, I have the ball or the puck, and I'm trying to get it here while you prevent it, and you're going the other way and doing the same thing, and things reverse. And if you sit down, they're very easy to understand. And, and as, as, as a, a, my friend Steve once described them, they're caveman sports. And they're, it's all the same template. I have the ball. I'm trying to get it here. I have the object. I'm trying to get it there. And you are, you're, you're trying to keep me from doing that. And I'm going to keep you from doing Goal that. Goal sports of some type. Yeah. Goal sport. And, and so they're all, it's, that template of sport doesn't appeal to me at all. It's very, it's very weird. I, the, one of the things I love about baseball and certainly the thing that first attracted me to baseball is just how goddamn weird it is. Right. Um, you know, it, it's I, if you ever get a chance to like, if you have a friend who is not from this country and is not familiar with the game, and you can go to a game with them, it is amazing how confused they are, and it's just ingrained with us because we grew up with it. Yeah. Um, like you can sit that person down to on a, to a football game, and, and American football is something that obviously a lot of people outside of American don't pay attention to or understand, and um they'll get it like real quick. They might not understand all the intricacies in the play, but they understand like what you're trying to do. Right. Baseball is just baffling to people. Um, it takes forever to, to, for them to even have a, even a real clue. And it just, it's, it's all of the various, very strange abstractions wrapped around the game itself. That I think is what first appealed to me. And I think it's the reason that and I'm probably going to write about this at some point. Why so many musicians and artists, if you ask them what sport they follow, it's baseball. Um, because it really is like the weirdest, most artistic sport of all. And that's why I like it. And that's why I don't like other sports. Yeah. Are you another sports person? I don't even know. I, so I really like basketball. I, I played basketball and football growing up. I didn't play baseball ironically because I was just bad. Um, but I just always loved baseball because like you said, it's just, well, it's super weird. And I also like. The fact that it gives you this false sense that you can compare people from different time periods so that it mm. connects you to other people who know the sport. I talk to my dad and my uncle about baseball a lot, and you know we have very different experiences in our lives. Sure. Uh, they, they were born a very different time than I was, and they experienced their baseball very differently than I did growing up, but we can still talk about it. And I think that's very cool, and maybe something that wouldn't work so well for basketball. I like basketball, and... Like, like pro basketball? So... I watch a lot of pro basketball in the playoffs, and I... So I, you watch the playoffs. Like, you're not going to sit down and watch, like, all 82 Warriors games. Oh, you're no. not going to sit down and go, oh, it's Wednesday and Golden State's playing Chicago, and I'm watching that. No. If there's some marquee game that I could watch with friends... I do enjoy watching sports with my friends who like sports. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would not consider myself very bro I was talking to Meg about whether I'm bro today, and I think I'm squarely on the not bro side of things. <laughs> um I also, uh, I do enjoy the occasional sports wager of small stakes, with a f- like just usually against a friend of mine. And mm-hmm. sports where I don't drown myself in analyzing them are better for that. <laughs> it's like not as interesting for me to like try to figure out something about baseball to make $5 off my friend than to bet on some random football game that neither of us knows anything about. 
Right. Uh, I'm kind of off football. I find myself watching less and less every year. And yeah, I just really like basketball. Not enough to watch it in the regular season, but enough to... You get into for the playoffs. Get into the playoffs. I'll watch March Madness, cheer for UVA. Although I'm totally with you on the the sense of college fandom. I think that is much more so college football fandom. Yeah, it is for sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's as someone who used to um, spend a good amount of time at SEC campuses watching baseball. Um, the football world down there is unbelievable. It's just so weird. I saw a great it's quote. Just, it's just weird to me. Uh, that, that SEC chant has taken over all of our, like all of our events. And it was from an Oregon gymnastics coach. And it's like, well, <laughs> what? <laughs> Who's going to these things and doing unbelievable. that? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, so send us an email. You can ask us anything. Don't feel a little weird asking us anything. The emails go to chinmusic at fangraphs.com. Again, I read them all. And again, I have no intern reading my emails. Ben, it's time to catch up with you. Let's do it. You went to some playoff games. You went to San Francisco and saw Dodgers Giants. I went to a Dodgers Giants game. I was not in the press box because uh, I couldn't make game one of the series. And I think it would be a little gauche to ask for scarce press box seats and then skip mm. one of them. <laughs> I bought my way in the, uh, the Rube way paid for my ticket and went to the game did you did you is this an aftermarket purchase it was because i'm did you get did you get hit hard what'd you pay for this just give it up ben what'd you pay for your ticket a little under 300 bucks okay i didn't think that was bad honestly where were you about where was the seat lower you were lower bowl right lower bowl oh i think you did great yeah halfway between third and the left field wall and maybe i think you did great i i was quite happy with the seats for the price I've paid more for worse seats in New York in playoff games. I I was yeah I was totally happy with it. It was a great game. I think it was the best game of the playoffs. Mm-hmm. I wish the Giants had won. I don't have any agenda to cheer for either team, but it is a lot more fun to watch a home team win. And also, like I would have liked seeing a playoff you know hunt and playoff entirety play out in San Francisco because it's fun when the yeah, city sure. has a playoff team. But that was an awesome game. I. I'm so glad that I went. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't have changed anything at all about it. Who'd you go with? My wife. Okay. Yeah. So I said I had this picture of you like alone there, and it made me sad. Oh no. Um, she and I used to go to a good number of Mets games because the tickets were actually surprisingly not that bad, mm-hmm. and we had a like a 20 game season ticket pass, and we'd go every. Is she weekend. a baseball fan? Yeah, big baseball okay. fan. Not as big as me, obviously, but yeah, she's a baseball fan, grew up in Milwaukee, and so likes the Brewers, but picked up the Mets because she lived in New York for 12 years. So we'd go to a bunch my, of games, and yeah. Yeah, my wife's not a baseball fan, um, and it's kind of funny when I think about because often, um, especially during the playoffs, she would travel with me. Right. And I and I think, like, my wife's been to 10 World Series games, <laughs> and she's not a baseball fan. Yeah. Like, my, I, I, like it's, it's so often, uh, you know. Obviously, I will have baseball on the television, right? And my wife will, you know, walk in, or, or even she's just sitting at with me and you know, looking at her phone, or she'll look up and she'll go, "I've been there, right?" And I'll go, "Yep, you have." <laughs> and it's just kind of amazing how many places she's been to, even though the fact that she's really not a baseball fan, um, she's she's been all over. Yeah. One thing that I do think is great about baseball, and this maybe furthers our previous question, is that you can not be a big baseball fan and like going to baseball games. Mm-hmm. I went to a few games this year with friends who are certainly not baseball fans, but whatever, T-Mobile, Pac-Bell Park to me still. 
Yeah. It was beautiful. It's a very fun place to spend an afternoon. When you said T-Mobile, I didn't even know what stadium you're talking about. I'm not going to lie. I'm actually I need, not even I need, sure. I, need, I, need, I, I think it's Oracle. I think it's Oracle, not T-Mobile. Yeah, sure. Yeah, who knows? But yeah, you know, generic corporate Fortune 500 company name park, which I think of as Pac-Bell. Is, it's awesome. It's a great place to watch a game. It's a great park, yeah. It's fantastic. And on a work level, we, we've referred to it a couple times already, uh, but you have been leading the charge on our annual free agent rankings, 1 through 50. Um, I have indeed. What goes into making those rankings? Kind of like where is your mindset there um, in terms of getting the rankings right, I guess is where I'm going. So, like, are you are you trying to? Are you saying like this is how we should rank them? Or are you saying I think this is how teams rank them? Like, how do you balance those things? I guess that is a great question. I don't think I succeeded really in uh, <laughs> in coming up with a a consistent way of explaining that. But what I did to start was I ranked the players in terms of the order in which I liked them. That was my initial list. I considered who I thought were the best players. And, you know, some of that's tough because who's better, Max Scherzer or Trevor Story? Well, like, Max Scherzer is obviously going to be better next year, or very likely to be better next year. But Trevor Story's 10 years younger. Uh, and so, I don't know. There's there's no correct way to handle that. Right. Thing. Are you going off of, yeah, Max Scherzer's going to be better next year, and Trevor Story's going to deliver more war over the right. period so of I, the deal. I weighted it towards who will be better next year in general, because mm-hmm. I think that that matters more. Uh, the future is unknowable and scary, and the more you get out into it, the less you're going to know. But Max Scherzer will probably be great next year, so I yeah. consider him a top free agent. Yeah. Uh, so that's how I started. Then I got feedback from basically the whole Fangraphs staff and a lot of the non-staffed, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, you know, uh, contributors, and asked for feedback just saying, what do you think of this list? And some of that feedback was, I think this guy sucks, and I think this guy's great. Some of that feedback was, I think, I'll give one that you told me. What did Eduardo Escobar do to your family? <laughs> well, he was very low. I don't want to talk about it. It's very personal. No, nothing. But uh, I had a low. <laughs> and some of it was, do you think teams will like this guy? And I will give you an example a guy that we've talked about, Avisal Garcia, mm-hmm. is higher on my list than his the contract that I have listed him as getting would merit. Uh, I have him sandwiched between Kyle Schwarber and Michael Conforto. I won't tell you where that is on my list. Readers, listeners, that you won't uh, get an unfair sneak preview. But Coming Monday. Coming Monday. Fan- in a world <laughs> where free agents are ranked. But uh, both I and the crowd agree that he's going to get less money than either of those guys. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I think I'd rather have Avi next year, or Avi Sahil next year, than Michael Conforto if for a one-year deal. I had, so. You want to you, you hear real crazy? Yeah. I was talking to someone uh, this week. Yes, it was, it, was, it was Monday this week. And I mentioned we were doing the free agent rankings. and he, And he said to me, I'm, I'm not sure I see that much of a difference between Avisael Garcia and Nick Castellanos. That's interesting. Um, and I said, that's crazy. And then he explained like he was just, he like, Castellanos is so bad defensively. And he said, as an NL team, I think you'd make, I think you'd make an argument that you'd rather have Garcia. Yeah. I have Castellanos 
meaningfully higher because and I, and, and, and I think be that plays like and I agree, and I and I agree with your ranking. I yeah. am a I am a I to, to to use a term that the kids might use. I am a Nick Castellanos stan. I I oh, nice. I'm, I big fan of that bat. Always really always loved him. Pushed pushed for a pushed for an acquisition a couple of times during my my time with the team. And um, I agree with you. I just got like such an interesting thing to to hear and and um you know just to you know, talk about how how teams think like to, to hear someone saying like i don't see i think these guys are really close i think you know i'm not sure it's a big difference and i think you, you could argue that you'd rather have garcia that shows you and we've talked about this in the past but like with prospect rankings that are internal to teams so it's, it's a pretty wide variance yeah um in looking through now i think that most of the list goes the way that you're talking about like uh just what what they'll fetch in the market because these things are hard to figure out like relative preferences and i don't like i think my preferences make sense i'm i consider myself to be good at this but i have to good for you i'm glad you said that you should yeah but i have to take into account the fact that they are one person's views and what the market thinks matters a lot too you know there's guys on here that i probably wouldn't have in the nearly as high on the list but i'm sure they're going to get a lot of money and they're going to do well so I like, can, you, can you give an example of someone who you think is high because the market sees him as high but you don't see him as high um let me look through for i think my favorite example this is compelling podcast time ben's opening a file yeah. he's reviewing names he's going to find an answer to the question okay um how about this carlos Rodon. I would be terrified to give him a long deal. I don't think you're wrong. And I would say that I I bet I would, I will preface what I'm about to say with what we always used to say. I used to make sure I always said when we talked about free agency, which is it just takes one team, right? Right. And whatever you think a player's value is, he's going to exceed that because he's going to take the highest bid. It's not, it's not how it's not the average bid. It's he, he gets the highest bid. Right. Um, I would bet that most teams feel the way you do about Carlos Rodon and it, as a terrifying thing. And, and I would personally, um, if I looked, if I was working for a team and looked deeper and had interest in Carlos Rodon, I would definitely recommend a one-year deal. And I would even want to see if I could just incentivize the hell out of him. So if, if he's good, he can make a ton. Like I'll, I'll incentivize guy up to twenty, you know. But like, see, like just do something that way to, to kind of protect the risk because the risk is significant. Yeah. I I get the sense that he's going to get more than one year. I I think I would bet he gets two. If I I would bet he gets two. I, just, the injury history is really going to hurt him in terms of length. Injury histories hurt hurt players far more in length than they do AAV. Yeah. So I have him for three, and I was wondering if that should be two. And the mm-hmm. crowdsourcing has him at four, which seems high, and also for a higher AAV than I have. And yeah, I bet he gets lots of two options. He's going to have all sorts of two offers, and someone's going to throw an option on, and that's going to get it done. Yeah, that's that's, the, that's my that's my gut hot take prediction without thinking about it for more than forty three seconds. Yeah, and I'll give you the opposite side. I okay. have Jan Domes much higher on my list than I think people do because I think Jan's going. Yeah, I think Jan's going to do well for himself. I think he's going to get an eight figure deal for a year if he wants it, or you know, like a two ten or something. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people think that. So uh, Jan Gomes is—he's thirty-four, right? Uh, yeah. So that yeah, you know, 30, so thirty-four. Um, but a guy who 
uh, you know, a catcher who can slug 400 plus um, and has a really wonderful reputation in terms of those um, those intangibles that are so important to teams and, and catchers. I thought Jan Gobes was a great pickup for Oakland and, and made an impact despite the fact they didn't really hit for him. Um, and Gate Figures would surprise me, but I think he'll do well. Yeah, considered to be a reasonable receiver, mm-hmm. which is... Uh... So he's one where, like, I put him higher on the list than I... Like, his. if you look at just the money, he would stick out. He's projected to make less money for less years than some of the people around him. But I just think he's so good that, like, I think he deserves a, a higher spot than the rest. Yeah, and catchers can be a premium at times. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I like I'm, I'm with Jan Gomes. I'm, I'm with you. We're going to start the, the Jan Gomes fan club. We'll start the Jan Gomes podcast. Gomescast. <laughs> Uh, what else are you working on? Uh, that is taking like the most of my time up, but I messed around with some various predictive stats for minor leaguers who aren't like guys. Minor mm. leaguers who aren't top 100 guys, but are still kind of interesting last year. And I, I felt like I was getting somewhere. And then season started. And so I published a list of like, here's some guys I liked. And it, it did okay. Um, Eggy Rosario, I really liked, and I feel like he did pretty well this year. And okay, yeah, for Eric sure. didn't let me. Well, didn't let me. Uh, didn't let me didn't put let uh, Gabriel Moreno on there because he was actually a top 100 prospect. Right. But that was kind of a late push to make him a top 100 prospect. And yeah, I, 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 I pushed that one. Yeah, and I was like, I think this guy is like a top 30 minor league hitter, and that one worked really well. I, so like. I think there's some okay stuff in my methodology that I'm having. I was mainly just having fun coming up with it. Yeah, uh, no, that's cool. And I'd like to work more on that. So that's on my plate for once I finish this, uh, this free agency thing. I'm still doing a lot of kind of last second tweaking. You convinced me to change a value on the spreadsheet of average annual values just now when we were talking. Oh, good. Yeah. Never done tinkering. Um, I'm, I'm serving my purpose. But yeah, uh, that's... That's kind of what I have going on right now. I'm still doing this uh, managerial report card of the postseason series. That was a, a concept that Meg came up with that I think was pretty good. Yeah, those have been fun. Uh, as a spoiler, I think the best two managers in the postseason were the two in the World Series. Do you think that, that those would be more accurately titled as kind of team strategy report cards? Yes. I, uh, I was writing about that in the intro for this one. That they're team strategy report cards. It matters both the information that the front office can put in front of the manager to help him make the best decisions and then how he executes that in the right. in the moment. Because if you give yeah, a, a thing that's just like written in crayon and it says, use Matzik, well then <laughs> it's a higher degree of difficulty. Right. Like, you know, and, 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 you know, like Dusty Baker got a lot of credit for um, kind of changing his ways, if you will, and, and, and making some adjustments and becoming, you know, for lack of a term, more, more modern manager. And there's a lot of narrative around that. And I think he did do a great job. I thought Dusty was a great manager in the, in the postseason. Um, I also, you know, it, it's it's part of me being too close to things. Mm-hmm. Um, know a lot of the people who are in Dusty's ear from, from the advanced group and, and as others in the front office who are, you know, helping him along in that res- respect and saying, you know, this is, this is, the, you know, this is a good template for this game. And, um, I've seen those templates and it's very much like, here's the starter. Here's when we start thinking about taking him out. Yeah. It's, it's game situation. It's, it's, it's almost like a, like a branching, um, you know, create your own adventure kind of thing. You know, yeah. it's, it's the third inning. His player is struggling. We're down by two. 
go to pitcher B, you know, right. it's, 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 it's very much like that. And, and I, I've seen them and they're, they're really well done. And there's, there's tons of thought and work put behind them. And, um, so and I think that's the most teams front offices where they are playing a, a very big role in, in kind of in-game strategies up to the manager to execute. That's what, and, and I think you do need to have a manager. And, and we talked about this in the first segment with, with Snicker. I think you do have, have to have a manager who still has autonomy. Agreed. And a manager who still has um, the ability to use his gut and, and you nod your head when he does. And I think that's fine. And I think it's not just fine, but preferred. Um, but I, I think when you're kind of grading strategy for a playoff thing i do think it kind of goes on the whole team yeah i think if i like when i do this again i think this is a fun exercise and people love caring way too much about managerial decisions mm -hmm. you know they they maybe impact two percent of a win or something yeah, yeah. For being and, yeah. really they're, generous but they're 10 they're 10 percent of the job right it's very fun to talk about because mm -hmm. it's one of the few things where you could honestly say maybe i could do that better or maybe i could yeah. there's nothing else in baseball where i'm like oh i could do that like that, just, this is not going to happen. I couldn't even, right. like, Martin Maldonado scoot up in the box and, you know, take a walk. <laughs> I would be terrified of getting hit and bail out every time. I don't think Martin Maldonado is afraid of anything. Exactly. I, so that, like, even that is nothing I could do. Whereas... This, this is me once in, once again enforcing that I am the biggest fan in the world of, of a of 180 hitting Martin Maldonado. You are the biggest fan of Martin Maldonado. I, I admit it. I admit it. Even you in the last segment had to say that maybe he's not going to, can't be the captain when he's hitting 180. It's tough, yeah. Um, it's time for a moment of culture, Ben. All right. You want to go um, first? I'll go first, Ben. I think it's important to, you know, sometimes we get a little uh, hoity-toity in the moment of culture. Talk about foreign films, good literature, good music. And so I'm going to trash it up. And uh, I have talked about this television show in the past on this podcast, and... I always thought it was uh, my wife and I's dirty little secret that we not only watched this, but were absolutely enthralled by it. And then I was just thrilled to learn. I've learned this through the podcast that uh, esteemed, well-educated co-hosts, people like David Roth, Stephanie Epstein, are also fans of Love Island. At the same time, they have also refined their taste, as have I, and learned that American Love Island is hot garbage. And if you really want the worst of Love Island, you watch the foreign version. Oh, what you mean the best. Yes. And so uh, it, starts, it starts with Love Island UK, which is just a phenomenal adventure in accents and trashy living. And it went to Australia as well, which was even trashier. And I opened up Hulu the other day, and you know what, Ben? There's a new season of Love Island Australia. Amazing. This is the greatest escapist television that we have right now. It is a group of sexy singles. And they're at a resort somewhere. In the in the, the UK version, they tend to they're they usually in Mallorca. Okay. Um, in Australia, I think they're somewhere lovely in the Pacific. Um, they get together, they couple up, and they try to get through the show as couples and sometimes they break up and you have a new couple and then some new sexy singles come in and maybe will you stay with your current sexy single or flip to that sexy single and uh love on australia broke ground in their last season where all of a sudden and this, my wife thought that this should be the case all the time which is instead of sending 12 sex they should send 12 sexy bisexual singles 
Sure. And so boys could pair up with boys. Where a, a woman actually paired up with a woman for a week. It didn't work out. They didn't get along. Um, but but anyway, Australia breaks ground that way. But it, this is people um, behaving really poorly. And you get to hear amazing accents. And there's just something about it that makes it the most compelling show on television. And, and I'm just so glad that it's just not the it's just not something horrible about my brain to hear that other really smart people with good taste also love this. And so I have no, I haven't seen a second of Love Island Australia season three yet. And yet I've, I have absolutely, I don't pause a second either in recommending you watch it as, as your escapist television to get away from all the badness in the world. That sounds great. Love Island Australia on Hulu. This is not a paid promotion. I get no money from Hulu. I pay for Hulu. What do you got, Ben? I'd like to talk to you about cryptocurrency. No, I would not like to talk to you about <laughs> cryptocurrency. We're going to talk about Bencoin, which is coming out soon. You can invest in Bencoin. Do you understand cryptocurrency, by the way? Uh, marginally. Yeah. Okay. I think we're on the same page. It just feels like um, it just feels like a multi-level marketing scheme. Yeah, and, I find the I, technology actually underlying some of the like like Ethereum kind of technology and interest, very yeah. interesting. The the culture of it and the get rich quick. Uh, prospecting nature of it is a uh, is a bit annoying and has kept me out yeah, of the I, cryptocurrency markets in general. And I and I think that's why it reminds me of like a multi level marketing thing where it kind of requires, or at least the people in front of it, it seems to kind of require like a bit of a cult like thing going. Yeah, I, I think that's about right. Yeah, it's weird. Anyway, I, I digress. What yeah. is your moment of culture? So my moment of culture is about uh, food, as mine often are. Okay. And as I mentioned to you earlier, maybe on here as well, my wife is in Chicago for business this week. And so I have been on my own. And we like to cook, but she's a better, more adventurous cook than I am. But I've come up with a, a sauce that I've been putting on a lot of things that has worked pretty well. And that I thought I'd share with people. If you are an okay cooker and you just like goofing around with stuff, I made this up entirely on my own. And okay. Well, first of all, sauce is a very vague term. Yes. Uh... So I will explain to you how to make it, uh, and I will let you know what it goes on. This is great. Okay, Chin Music Recipe Hour begins now. Okay, so the first key to this recipe is to go to an Asian market. Uh, That's Look, I live in DeKalb, Illinois, and I have one, so everyone has one. This is downright necessary and not too hard to do. I'm going to want you to pick up a bunch of random-ish stuff. Uh, Fried chili paste, which I think is quite good. Uh, Some... Chili in oil, which will be in a jar with kind of red chilies and a red oil. Oh, yeah. Uh, you got some rice vinegar. That's a classic. Yep. Some black vinegar. And a little sesame oil. Uh, you're also going to want to go to any store in America that sells groceries and pick up some kind of habanero sauce, which is not a Chinese recipe, but is very important. So you, you basically mix together all the things I said there, uh, except for the habanero, with some soy sauce and some honey. And... I do this to taste. I've had a lot of... Ex- you're, making a de- you're making a delicious pot sticker sauce. Essentially, yes. You're making a delicious pot sticker sauce. That is that is a great way to think about it. I tend to do it to taste. I'm not going to give you units for each of these. Basically, like keep stirring it, taste a little bit, see if you like the taste. Keep stirring it, taste a little bit, see if you like the taste. Once you like the taste, add in a few drops of habanero sauce. Because I find that... That heat actually cuts through pretty nicely if what we're going to do with it next, which is chop up a bunch of a vegetable that you like that soaks up sauce well. I've had the most success with broccoli, but 
I think it works pretty well with like cauliflower or eggplant or anything like that too. Chop a bunch of that up. Pour half of your sauce into a Ziploc bag with your chopped up vegetables and shake it up and leave it in the fridge for about three hours. The sauce will soak in incredibly well. Uh, then you're going to want to preheat your oven to 500 degrees. It's very hot. You're going to burn your vegetables, which is a good thing to do. Very hot. Uh, with the sheet pan in the oven. So be careful when you do this. Yes. Um, it's it's going to get very hot. Then you're going to want... Uh, I also do it with a sheet of parchment paper down on the on the sheet pan to start with. This makes cleaning up easier. Yeah, exactly. It's going to result in less charring sticking to the, the uh, sheet pan afterwards. So put on some oven mitts. When the oven is finished preheating, take the sheet pan out. It's going to be really hot. Definitely wear oven mitts for this. Be careful. (laughs) Uh, It is seriously, it's no joke. It's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 degrees. Right. And it's metal. So it'll transfer that heat to you really quickly. You will burn yourself like you would not believe if you touch it. Don't touch it. Uh, Dump the broccoli is the best for this method, but cauliflower works very well too. Dump it on there. Pop it back in the oven. Cook it for 10 minutes. It is going to char like crazy. And that is, like you said, that's what you want. You want to burn the vegetables. You want the inside to still be crispy, but the outside... Or you want the inside to cook, but not get soggy, and the outside to be charred. A little charred, yeah. Yeah, it works very well. In the meantime, I tend to uh, saute some chicken sausage uh, diced up on the stove. Uh, something with a neutralish flavor, because it seems like it's hard to get unflavored chicken sausage. Then you take it out, you cover the rest in the remainder of your sauce, and you eat it. And I have to say... I'm not a great cook. I could make this new favorite. six days a week and eat it, and it would be delicious by switching up the vegetables, maybe putting in some peanuts for crunch. It just works. It's a, it works like a charm. That's Recipe Corner. That's Recipe ben Corner. Clemens. It is a wholly invented recipe by Ben Clemens. The cooking technique comes from Kenji Lopez-Alt, who is a very good food writer who wrote a book called The Food Lab that has cool cooking techniques, the, the charring the broccoli. But... Yeah. I can take credit for that. I think this is a good way if you are at home and don't think you're a good cook. I am not a good cook. I make this a lot. It tastes good every time. Yeah, and I, I would absolutely. I think that's one of the keys to understanding how to cook vegetables is you burn your vegetables. So, Always. So cooking corner, uh, cooking moment of culture. You know, don't don't get this to don't take this to mean that I think I'm a great cook and that you guys should always listen to my advice. I don't, but. I do make this a lot, and I think it tastes good. So I thought I'd share it with you. If people. you make it, please please tweet at Ben and I with a photo of it. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be the best. You'll be our heroes. If you if you make this and tweet a photo, uh, I will guarantee to read one of your emails questions on the show. That, that's, that's, that's awesome. That's your incentives. Uh, I think we're done here, Ben. I think so, too. I want to thank you for joining me and wasting your afternoon. I wouldn't um, say I wasted it. <laughs> We'll be back next week. Who knows who will be in the co-host chair? Who knows who will be the guest? I know who will be the guest. It's a cool one, too. Uh, So we will talk to you next week.
借